Good morning, good day, or good evening. My name is Eli Rowe, and this is the Middle-Aged Witch Podcast. Well, we made it to July. I think we need to give ourselves some recognition for that alone. It hasn't necessarily been a smooth ride, but, you know, every day is an opportunity to rewrite, um, well, or at least revise our story. This is something I've been working on myself. This is probably something we should all have in the back of our minds all of the time to some extent. And yes, it's not reasonable or realistic or healthy to constantly be grinding, 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 you know, constantly focused on self-improvement, never giving ourselves a break. And I swear if I see another goddamn meme talking about like you have the same number of hours in a day as Beyonce, shut up, I'm going to lose it. But it's also not healthy to let ourselves continue to just sit comfortably in stagnation. You know, it's important to push ourselves a little, to challenge ourselves, to learn new things or find out what we're capable of. And if we've made it this far into the year, we have definitely been challenged. So kudos to all of us. Um, Also, uh, as an aside, I did have some major email issues this past week. So if you wrote to me and I didn't respond, please send it again. There were a good four or five days that I wasn't receiving emails. And although it has been resolved, any emails that were sent during that time have been, you know, lost in the ether. So please just send it again and I'll get to it right away. Today, we're going to talk about one of my favorite kinds of magic. We're going to talk about folk magic. I love folk magic. It varies so much across regions and cultures, but all of these different seemingly disparate practices have so much in common. These practices come from cultures in which people made do with what they had. Folk practitioners were not, as a rule, wealthy and powerful. These people were working from a place of powerlessness, by and large, and so that's why you'll see a lot of workings in folk magic for, you know, getting even with an unfair boss, or workings for keeping the tax men away, or workings for women to get themselves a good husband. This kind of magic is very, very practical. And it tends to use items that were easy to come by and usually free to the people that these spells were meant to serve. Uh, Generally, it's regionally based. um, And with very few exceptions, folk magic is an extension of traditional folk healing, which would have included an almost seamless blend of medicinal plants and other natural remedies used in combination with folk beliefs rituals, customs, traditional practices, um, local superstitions. Every culture had healers and they had all kinds of names for their profession. You know, maybe shaman, uh, cunning folk, witch doctors, of course, would have fallen under that umbrella. Wise women and wise men, herbalists, uh, curanderos, the list truly goes on and on. Uh, They're called good walkers in Italy. And while I'm not going to devote a lot of time today on the herbal medicine aspect of this practice, even though it's one of my favorites, I do just want to address where the roots of folk magic come from in order to understand the reverence and the respect that these practices were given. These practitioners were held in very high regard within their communities. 
Uh, they typically would have an extensive knowledge of local plant life and remedies for all kinds of common ailments. Uh, they would likely be skilled midwives as well. So they were present and they were relied upon during the most significant times in people's lives. They would have spent their entire lives learning and performing their respective duties in their communities. And in turn, they were given a special position of esteem and the knowledge that they had would have been passed down to them from an ancestor or a teacher, and they in turn would have passed their knowledge down. But it's those supplemental additions of ritual, superstition, custom, and folk beliefs that we're going to focus on today. And we're going to cross a lot of cultural lines and talk about common folk magic from a lot of different sources today, just so that we can have a really rounded discussion but I do think it bears mentioning that if we look in our own backyard, so to speak, if we think about the regions that we live in, the people historically who lived here, wherever here may be for you, and their own practices, and then of course in our own family lineages, we can really find rich histories and traditions to draw from. Now, Traditionally, folk magic blended with everyday life in such a way that what we would commonly think of as witchcraft now would have been completely normal and accepted then. I know that there is a long history of persecution of anyone even tangentially associated with witchcraft, but the people of those times drew a very distinct line between these widely held folk beliefs and what they called witchcraft. Witchcraft to them was synonymous with, you know, devil worship curses, hexes, uh, consorting with demons, you know, human sacrifice and cannibalism, things like that. Something as simple as like hanging a special bag of herbs and animal bones above your bed to like heal your cough, that would not have been considered witchcraft at all. That would have just been healthcare. Now, my people came here primarily from the indigenous tribes of Oregon on one side and then from Oklahoma and before that Ireland on the other side. So there are a lot of folk beliefs to be found just in my own family line. Um, and of course, you know, there are some of the usual beliefs like, you know, divining whether a pregnant woman is having a boy or a girl, depending on how high or low in the abdomen she carries her baby. But then there are the little customs that are more particular. I mean, and then right on down to like the really niche practices that only exist in my lineage. You know, I know my grandmother and my grandfather before he passed had a little custom of two quick kisses on the lips and then one on the cheek before either of them would leave the house to go somewhere. They always did this religiously. And then of course, you know, the one time they didn't, my grandmother's Buick was t-boned by a police car in the middle of an intersection. So when I tell you that they were religious about this little tradition, I am quite serious. But let's talk a little bit about those practices that kind of transcend time and place and are found in all kinds of tradition. Because I feel like the fact that some of these practices are so widespread actually gives them a lot more weight. If all kinds of different peoples we're using similar methods to solve their similar problems, then there's probably something to it. At least that's my thinking. There is a lot of overlap between practices like hoodoo, santeria, granny magic, conjure, and indeed there is a lot of overlap among regional beliefs and customs. You know, for example, you'll find beliefs and methods of protection 
against the evil eye across the world and back through recorded history. I mean, in ancient Syria, for crying out loud, through modern Greece, Turkey, Italy, all across Europe, actually, uh, West Asia, West Africa, and more. Every single one of these regions believed that you could be cursed by a malevolent glare, frequently as a result of someone's envy. And all the people in these regions had their own specific methods for protecting themselves against the evil eye. Uh, they would frequently use an amulet or a charm of some kind, but not always. Um, but, you know, the nazar, which comes from Turkey, this is the little blue-eyed charm that most of us probably think of to protect against the evil eye. Um, also, the hamsa, which comes to us from North Africa and the Middle East. Uh, this is also known as the hand of Miriam in Jewish culture. And this is the charm that looks like a, kind of a stylized hand with an eye in the middle of the palm. Um, you'll also find that the color blue, you know, that bold, deep blue usually found in those evil eye charms is used by lots of different cultures as well for protection against it, which I find really fascinating. Um, I didn't write it down in my notes, but <clears throat> um, there are some old, like the Philips Milk of Magnesia bottles. They're this really rich blue color. Those have been used by folks trying to protect themselves from evil eye. The evil eye is so pervasive across cultures that it's definitely one of those things that I am really confident exists. So, you know, whatever method that you may have for protecting yourself and your loved ones from the envy or the poison of someone else's thoughts, as long as you're doing something, the better off you'll be. But these are the kind of folk beliefs that I'm talking about. Everybody everywhere kind of has the same idea about this stuff. It gives it a lot of credibility. Now, the idea of sacred plants is another folk belief that you're going to find in any culture. And again, these are going to vary by region and especially by any particular group's place of origin. And I'm not talking only about medicinal plants. I'm specifically talking about assigning plants magical properties. Um, you know, for example, the lotus. In Hinduism, Buddhism, um, and ancient China, the lotus is very special. You know, it grows so beautiful and so white, and it's, you know, grows out of the mud and the muck and it just sits atop the murky water. And for those people, it represents life, um, fertility, purity. Uh, mistletoe was significant to the Celtic Druids, not because it could be used medicinally, it's actually poisonous as hell, but for communing with spirits. And indeed, we in the West still hang it at Yuletide, and we might stand under a bough of mistletoe and kiss whoever we find there. But just to single out a particular herb and expand on it like we did with the evil eye, I want to talk about basil and its significance worldwide and historically. Basil is significant to Orthodox Christians in that they believe that basil sprang from the ground below the cross where Christ's blood fell uh, as he was being crucified. And so Orthodox priests will use basil to purify holy water, and then they'll dip sprigs of basil into the water and sprinkle it onto the congregation. But in folk beliefs, basil has had all kinds of meaning for all kinds of people. Basil has been used as an antidote for snake bites in India. Um, basil was carried for protection and even buried with the dead to provide protection in the afterlife. 
Uh, basil was known as the herb of poverty and that it was believed to protect the poor specifically from misfortune. Um, in Crete, basil was placed in windowsills to ward off evil and even the devil himself. So, you know, if we put all this together, what can we divine from all of this? What can we determine about the properties of basil? Well, we see this theme over and over again of basil having these strong protective and defensive qualities. So perhaps there is something that we can give a little credence to. Once again, if all of these disparate cultures separated by time and place recognized the protection that basil offered, then maybe it's because basil is a very protective plant. And this is why I think at least a basic working knowledge of folk magic can be so helpful. It's just so easy nowadays to look up a plant that grows commonly in your area and find out how it's been used by ancient cultures. And when we see how it's helped so many people, we can start feeling really confident in its effectiveness. And psychedelics and psychoactive plants like peyote and cannabis have incredibly rich significance for people. These plants are thought to give a person a direct line to God, to open up the mind to see and understand things in a much more spiritual way. And now there are some psychoactive plants that have become sacred to practitioners of like modern witchcraft for similar reasons. You know, datura and mugwort are two pretty common plants that are used for flying ointments and ritual teas. Now, obviously, these plants need to be used with extreme caution and under experienced supervision, but the purpose is the same, to receive visions, to gain wisdom, to sort of exist for a little while across dimensions. And some of these plants, like tobacco, are offered ritually to spirits of the dead as you know a benefaction or a tribute, especially to appease the spirits if they're considered to be angry or offended. And again, the reason I bring this up is because these plants have ritual significance across cultures. These weren't used like party drugs, not historically. Culturally, these plants are revered for their ability to allow a person to have transcendent experiences. And again, that's what I think gives these plants credibility. If all these cultures were just trying to get high, they'd just get high, but that's not how they're used. People go through ritual preparations before using these substances, especially for the first time. The things that they see, hear, and experience during these times are considered especially sacred. Now, another repeating theme that we see is the pentacle, which as every witch knows is simply a star inside a circle. These are symbols of protection in witchcraft, but they're also seen all over the world in places that we wouldn't typically expect to see them. We frequently find them on churches, monasteries, um, the rose windows of cathedrals, uh, in religious artwork. You know, the star represented for Christians, the Star of David. The Pennsylvania Dutch painted stylized stars inside of circles on their barns for protection as well as for decoration. They're called hex signs to the Pennsylvania Dutch and they're talismans of protection. 
For crying out loud, the Converse logo. The, for Converse shoes is the star within a circle. It's been given occult significance by primarily Christian fundamentalists who see the devil there. But the fact remains that the pentacle is a powerful symbol for a lot of people. Oh, I wanted to mention candle magic as well. Candles in folk magic are used a little differently to how they're used in today. I mean, I don't even know what we would call it, mainstream witchcraft, if that's a thing. You know, we see a lot of witches these days dressing a candle for certain intentions. I do it myself. But in folk magic, usually the candle is meant to represent a specific person. And depending on how we want that person's situation or even their life to go, that is how we would dress the candle. So if a person is crossed or hexed and we want to undo it, we would first set aside the candle to represent the hexed individual, give it a name, breathe life into it, and then carve a blessing into the wax and choose certain oils and herbs to aid in the uncrossing and so forth. And sometimes we would use two candles, especially in love workings, or to break a couple up. You know, with, of course, course each candle is going to represent one of the people that we're trying to affect. And then, of course, after the candle ceremony is over, the candle ritual, we would read the flames while the candle is burning to divine information about this working. Is the flame strong? Is it weak? Does it flicker or jump? You know, how confident do we feel about this working based on the state of the flame? And then once it's burned completely down, we can read the wax for signs as well. You know, shapes, different qualities in the drips of wax. Again, this is a practice that's used in many different cultures. And it should not surprise us that this is the case. If we travel far enough down the family tree of humanity, eventually we find that we all came from common roots. So the wisdom of our oldest ancestors lives on and reaches forward through time to teach us, to remind us of the secrets that we all used to know. And a lot of these secrets can still be found in folk magic. They're not as striking or flashy or pretty as some of the newer methods of magic that we find, but they are no less powerful. And I think with all of this, what we can take away is that we don't have to dig too deep to find a lot of traditions that we can explore and maybe even bring back and fold into our own practices. I think we find that a lot of us tend to ignore our own histories when we are looking to connect with ancient magical practices. For whatever reason, we think that other cultures or traditions have the answers. And while there are definitely answers to be found by broadening our horizons, I think we might be really surprised, pleasantly surprised, and interested to learn what kinds of magic our own ancestors were practicing. So, you know, we need to look into our own family trees, find out where our ancestors hailed from, and start looking into the different folk beliefs that those people held. Learn more about the, re- the region that you're from. Find out how people handled their business back in the day. In this age, with our nearly unlimited access to information, free information, it is as simple as a Google search. You know, oh, folk magic in Oregon, folk beliefs of Ireland. Start close to your own roots and expand from there. It's so easy. It's really cool. And I think 
we just have an easier time connecting to traditions that are closer to our own roots. And I hope you find some really cool information. I know that you will. I hope that it helps to enrich your practice. Even if you don't start using any of the information you find, I think it will at least help to inform the way that you approach your own ancestors and venerate them. And if you find anything cool that you'd like to share, I would love to hear about it. Please message me on social media at, at middleagedwitch or via email at eli at middleagedwitch.com. Next week, we will be talking about reading signs, omens, and messages, and I can't wait. My name is Eli, and this has been the Middle-Aged Witch Podcast. content of this podcast is not a substitute for direct, personal, professional, mental, or medical health care and diagnosis. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only.